Here is a brief recap, very brief. Chapters 1 through 8 of Mark's Gospel, we have seen Mark building up a picture of who Jesus is. He kicks straight off with the idea that Jesus has come to both judge and save his people. And we've seen that unpacked in different scenarios, different encounters with different characters throughout those first eight chapters. Leading up to the climax in chapter 8, where Jesus' identity becomes clear, or so it seems, to at least some of his disciples. The disciples are asked by Jesus, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. However, we've seen that that pretty quickly was shown to be a very shallow understanding. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't understand that he must die and rise again. And in fact, when Jesus started to explain it to them, Peter tried to tell him off, um, which didn't go down well. Since then, we've had a couple of episodes, the transfiguration up the mountain, the healing of a demon-possessed boy at the bottom of the mountain, which have just shown again and again the disciples don't really get it. And now we're jumping in at uh, chapter 9 and verse 30. And we're going to see them fail to understand again. So Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child, whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So, we're going to look at this passage in under three headings, or in three sections. From verses 30 to 32 is the first section. Uh, and it is Jesus teaching and the disciples failing to understand. 33 down to 37 is a lesson about greatness. And then 38 down to the end. It's maybe greatness again, but there's something about reputation involved in it. And we'll unpack that as we go along. Just a word about Jesus' disciples as we start. Mark's Gospel paints frankly, an unremittingly negative picture of Jesus' disciples. 
in almost every episode, they look bad. In fact, that is so much the case that some liberal biblical scholars, to deploy an oxymoron, believe that Mark's Gospel was actually authored by somebody who had some sort of axe to grind with the church's leadership, and he wanted to make the apostles look bad. Now, um, that's pretty speculative. And to be honest, I I don't think we need to, to follow it. Because I think that whenever we see the disciples looking bad in Mark, if we have any sort of self-knowledge, we will realize, yeah, that's, that's just what I would have done in that situation. So rather than Mark trying to make the disciples look bad, I think Mark is recording the disciples' genuine failures to make us understand where we are also going wrong and to encourage us to overcome those things. So today we're going to look at the disciples getting it wrong again. But the point is not so much the disciples. The point is you and me. And do we also get it wrong in just these same ways? So here's our first section. It stands at the head of this this passage really. The transfiguration has happened. The demon possession has been dealt with. And Jesus and the disciples leave that place. They're walking through Galilee. They're they're having a private teaching session. This is just for Jesus and his twelve disciples. Not the crowds. Jesus is deliberately hiding himself. Because he has important stuff to tell his disciples. Stuff that he needs them to listen to and hear. And this is what it is. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. It seems pretty clear to us what Jesus is saying. But the disciples did not understand. And really that shouldn't be too much of a surprise to us, because The first time Jesus tried to teach them about this in chapter 8, they did not understand. And indeed in chapter 9, as Peter, James and John are coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about what they have seen until after he has risen from the dead. And Mark records, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead might mean. Well, it might mean rising from the dead. But they don't get it. They can't see what it is that he is talking about. I'm not sure whether they're particularly condemned here for not understanding, but I'm sure that Mark's little comment about them being too afraid to ask him about it is a negative reflection on the disciples. Jesus wanted to teach them. They didn't get it. And they didn't want to ask him, probably in light of the rest of the passage, because the first person to say to Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, risks looking like a complete fool in front of all of the other disciples. What if, what if you're Thaddeus and 
Everybody else gets it except you. Best to keep quiet. Maybe it'll all become clear in time. So they don't get it. They don't get it, not actually because what Jesus is saying is complicated. It's really not. But because, as we saw with uh, Peter's response in chapter 8, this is not the sort of thing that the Messiah is meant to say or do, as far as they are concerned. And therefore, I think they assume he must mean something else. This must be something complicated in code, something symbolic. Because they just assume that they know already what sorts of things the Messiah will do and say. And dying and being beaten and insulted, that is not amongst those things. They can't imagine a Messiah who will take that route. And so they don't understand. And they don't ask. So there we are. The uncomprehending disciples of Jesus. And that really sets the scene for these next two episodes, which are, if you like, applied examples of not understanding Jesus. And actually, just as an aside, that's quite important that we understand that. Getting the Christian life right is all about getting Jesus right getting his death and resurrection right. I think sometimes we have a setup where if you get Jesus' death and resurrection right, you're in, you're a Christian. And now you need to start doing some ethics and working out how to live. That's kind of true. But the ethics comes out of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is all about living in the light of understanding who he is and what he has done. So, here we go. First, serious misunderstanding. They all get to Capernaum and they go into the house. And Jesus asks, noticed you were arguing on the road. What was, what was that about? Embarrassed silence. It's the sort of question where you imagine they know that Jesus knows exactly what they've been arguing about. And this is humiliating. They kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. It's the sort of argument that um, little children have. Who's the best? Who's the best disciple? I'm the best disciple. No, you're not. Did you go up the Mount of Transfiguration? I went up the Mount of Transfiguration. Where were you? Down in the bottom, failing to cast out demons. You're rubbish. It's this awfully awkward situation where Jesus knows they've failed and he's called them on it and they are just saying nothing. What can you say in face of that. Jesus' response is to turn their ideas of greatness completely upside down. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last 
and the servant of all. If you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the best disciple, said Jesus, here is what you have to do. Stop worrying about being the greatest and start being the least. Start serving everyone. Stop trying to put yourself into a position of leadership. Start putting yourself into a position of service. And he underlines the point with a little child. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's not um, that there's some particular quality of children that makes it especially noteworthy if you're welcoming to children. It's just children were of low status in this society. Not really that worthy of notice. And Jesus says, this is the kind of greatness that I want to see. Somebody who takes interest in the little children. Somebody who receives them in my name. That's what it looks like to be great. And actually the promise attached to it is extravagant. If you receive a little child in my name, says Jesus, you receive me. And you know what? If you receive me, you receive God the Father. An enormous promise attached to this tiny act of recognition and service. Because that's what greatness looks like. Being a servant of all. Now, if they had understood Jesus when he said that he was going to die and rise again, they should have expected that this was the way his kingdom would operate. Because what is Jesus doing? Going to be the servant of all. Going to put himself in the lowest place. They should have got it. Because following Jesus means following Jesus. Going the way that Jesus went. And the way that Jesus went was a way of service to the least and to all. If they had understood that Jesus was going to die, then they would have understood that squabbling about being the greatest was the most ridiculous thing they could have been doing. And they would have understood that being the greatest in Jesus' eyes is being a servant of all, being the least. I want to come back to how we apply that to ourselves at the end. Let's look at the, uh, the second episode. John pipes up. John has seen somebody going out and about, casting out demons. And moreover, casting out demons in Jesus' name. How has John reacted to this? 
Has he said, great, people are being freed from demonic oppression, or fantastic, more people are naming the name of Jesus? No. What John has said is, I told him to stop it, because he wasn't one of us. I think, um, on the face of it, John is concerned about branding. A little while ago, the University of Oxford realised that it may not own the copyright to its own coat of arms, which it had been using for some centuries. And this caused a serious panic and a mad scrabble around Wellington Square because the university's reputation was all caught up in that symbol. If other people were legally free to use that symbol wherever they liked, they could bring disrepute on the university. They could make us look bad. And, you know, we're good enough at doing that without any help. I think John is concerned that if there are rogue people out there using the name of Jesus, then they might get it wrong. They might make us look bad. The stuff that they do reflects on us. Seems like a a high and lofty concern in some ways. John is concerned for Jesus' reputation. But Jesus' response is, there's no need for that. Actually, it'd be very difficult for somebody to cast out a demon in my name one minute and then slander me the next. Don't worry about my reputation. Anyone not against us is for us. Jesus isn't worried about branding. That, in and of itself, would be a great lesson for us to get hold of. But let me just rewind a bit. Is that really John's concern? Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Literally, because he did not follow us. Gosh, John, look what you've done there. You've put yourself up with Jesus. Jesus, I told this guy to stop because he wasn't following you and me. He wasn't following us. He wasn't one of us. As if Jesus were just the first among equals of their little happy band of exorcists. Error. Jesus' response is very kind. Don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. You know what, John? My concern is broader than yours. But then also this. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. In other words, if this guy out there, who we know nothing about, is naming the name of Jesus and doing good in the name of Jesus, he'll get his reward. And you, John, don't need to worry about it. What I find interesting is that, of course, 
John isn't really concerned for Jesus' reputation, or at least he's concerned for Jesus' reputation insofar as John's reputation is also caught up with that. Maybe I'm reading it too harshly. Either way, Jesus isn't concerned. And they should have known that he wouldn't be concerned. He's going to die. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. If he were concerned about his reputation, he was on the wrong road. This is the road that goes to the cross. If only they'd understood. If only they had asked Jesus what he was talking about when he said that he was going to die and rise again. They wouldn't have made these mistakes. Which, of course, are not mistakes that we make at all. Or are they? This week, you and I will have opportunities to show that we are the best. We will have opportunities to put ourselves on top. Maybe not in big ways, maybe just in small, petty ways. Maybe in completely justifiable ways. Maybe we really are the best at this particular thing. Maybe I'm right, and it is important to me that you see that I am right and you are wrong. Maybe it is just that I have a certain status at work or in my family, and it is important that people respect that, that they respect me. I will have opportunities this week to make myself the greatest. And every time I choose to take the opportunity, I misunderstand the gospel. That is not what Jesus does. That is not the way we walk if we are following Jesus. It needs to be a different reaction that comes into my mind. How do I serve in this situation? How do I make myself the least and the servant of all? You and I are going to have opportunities this week to protect our reputations. I've thought about this a lot. One of the frustrating things about working life is how much effort you have to put into covering your own back. I genuinely send emails which I know will not get any response, but I send them anyway so that when everything blows up later on I can say, I did tell you that was going to happen. <laughs> Maybe I've misunderstood the gospel. Maybe, actually, I should be willing to take the hit to preserve somebody else's reputation at the expense of mine. I should follow Jesus. Maybe sometimes I even dress up preserving my reputation in Jesus-y language. It's very important that, you know, I've identified myself as a Christian. Very, very important that people think well of me because otherwise they may not think well of Jesus. Could be a good motive. Could just be me using Jesus 
to justify making myself look good. Because Jesus doesn't seem to go out of his way to make himself or his followers look good. Other thing I noticed about this passage. The examples of service that Jesus picks are really trivial. Jesus himself is going to be the servant of all by giving up his life on Calvary. But the example of being the servant of all that he gives to his followers is be nice to a child. Jesus is going to sacrifice everything. But the example that he gives of somebody who will get a reward is somebody who passes you a cup of cold water. Better. We're not actually called necessarily to great things. And it isn't in the great big decisions that we will see whether we want to be the greatest or whether we have understood the gospel. It isn't in the huge things that we will see whether we are more concerned for our reputations than we are for following Jesus. It's in the tiny, little, insignificant, day-by-day decisions. Here is a way I sometimes kid myself. This isn't that important. This isn't that important, this thing here. So I can, you know, cover myself here. Obviously, if something big came up, then I would act differently, sacrificially, as a servant. But in this trivial little thing, I just want to get my way. I just want my employees to do work that I don't want to do, or whatever it is. And it's a lie. (laughs) It's a lie because if I won't walk the way of Jesus in tiny little things like being nice to children and giving people cups of cold water, how do I possibly think that when the big stuff comes, when I am really challenged, that I will do what I ought to do? This is the challenge, guys. This week, we need to do better than just keeping our noses clean. I think sometimes we we get the idea that being a witness for Christ in the places where we are basically means not doing anything too dramatically wrong. But it means being a servant to all. Being prepared to be the least. Dishing out cups of cold water with no thought for anything other than heavenly reward. It's following Jesus on the way of the cross. And that is the challenge to me. But, here is the encouragement. If Jesus went this way, the way of the cross, became a servant to all, and, after three days, rose from the dead, That is a pattern that tells me that I don't need to stick up for myself. I don't need to prove myself to be the greatest. 
I don't need to uphold my reputation. Because insofar as I am following Jesus, sacrificing those things day after day after day, what waits at the end is resurrection, vindication. Does that make sense? I'm, 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 I'm looking for some nods or... It is a challenge. It is a challenge to go the way of the cross, to crucify ourselves day by day, to be the servants of all. But it is also an enormous liberation if I do not have to prove myself every day, if I do not have to be the greatest, if I do not have to be right every single time, if I do not have to have my reputation intact. All I have to do is follow Jesus along the way of service and sacrifice and then look towards the resurrection. This is what the Gospel does. It picks us up, shakes us up and says, live differently. Do it. It is a command. Follow Jesus on the way of the cross. This is the other thing the Gospel does. It says, you can, you may follow Jesus on the way of the cross. You must, but you may. And at the end of the day, it will be joy and glory if you do. One of the reasons we take communion is because we are remembering that way, remembering the way he went. And as we eat and drink, we're saying that is the way on which we will walk. We may walk that way. We are free to do so because of Jesus who has gone ahead of us. As we take bread and wine, it is as if we, we look ahead, down the track, and see Jesus has walked further along this road than me. He has been the servant of all at the cross. And he has risen again. And so that is my way. And that is my hope. Undeniably, it will be hard. It's the way of the cross. We can walk it with Jesus, following after him and looking to the resurrection. God help us to do so this week.